The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Hi there. We have a Category 55 emergency doomsday crisis. A Category 55 emergency doomsday crisis? Mm -hmm. Sorry, what is a Category 55 emergency doomsday crisis? It's nothing. It's a tiny little inconvenience. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, September 30th, 2021. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. On last week's show, we discussed healthcare fascism a prescription for hate. And the real focus of that discussion was the mandated vaccinations, which are not vaccinations and which do nothing that a vaccine should. Today's show is effectively part two of last week's discussion. Taking the conversation from the realities of those so-called vaccinations to the broader issues that have led to this fictional pandemic, namely the law, politics, and culture. It all gets underway right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right social media links and our archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Here's a Facebook response to our post accompanying last week's show made by Sherry B., who wrote, We have been played. Manufactured fear is the best way to control. End this madness. Just about everything we've been told during this COVID panic has turned out to be false. How many lies before we stand up? Huge number of cases are false positive. Proven safe effective treatments are banned. No evidence of asymptomatic transmission. Masks are ineffective for microscopic viruses. Large numbers of deaths from other illnesses are counted as COVID deaths. Numbers large due to COVID patients put in retirement homes. Experimental COVID mRNA vaccines are not safe. Expert opinions suppressed and truth censored on social media. Devastating lockdowns and sanitation efforts proven did not work. No mention of living healthy and boosting our natural immune systems. Our children are falling behind due to school closures, never recommended by the CDC, forced by teachers' unions. COVID virus did not mutate in a bat. It was a manufactured bioweapon with a gain of function in China's Wuhan lab funded by Fauci, end quote. And you know, that kind of reminds me of our broadcast several weeks ago, which was exclusively about how overwhelming the evidence was that demonstrated all this is about a political takeover, not about a pandemic. If I recall, I numbered every point and got up to at least 60, meaning I averaged one a minute in the one-hour broadcast. Here's a comment sent via Facebook as well by Sonny L., Quote, excellent podcast, Healthcare Fascism. I shared it, but it didn't let me tag you, and I wanted you to know I support everything you said, and I'm with you. And then she adds, you mentioned on your podcast, and a woman whose audio you played on the podcast also mentioned it, that some of the vaccines given were placebos, and the people didn't know about it. 
I can't find anything about that with some basic searches. I wonder if you could tell me how to learn more about that, end quote. Well, there's no specific place that I know of, Sonny, that you can go to, to find an official explanation of these placebos. And the irony is I first read about them in the mainstream media when it was being reported that a number of people who thought they'd received the vaccine later somehow discovered that this was not so. But the woman whose audio was played last week on the show was Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson, and on a very recent show of hers, she once again mentioned the video of the British parliamentary discussion about the placebos, and also mentioned that her site has links and references to that particular item, so maybe you might have some luck there. I have seen the topic raised in various discussions, almost in passing, but perhaps none has been more dramatic than the testimony of an undertaker named John O'Looney, who presented his own theory about the purpose of the placebos. We'll be hearing a bit of that later in the last half of the show today. Then we got this email from Jacob P., who wrote to us about last week's show and said, quote, Thank you very much for all you do. I have some questions. Is there a country or a leader that is not buying into this nonsense and is not following the same dictatorial regime? Why are so many countries following it? Is there some kind of threat to them? By whom? I hope you have some answers to these questions. Thank you. (laughs) You know, Jacob, I was afraid someone might ask me those questions (laughs) because there's no single answer to the broader questions. And I don't think most freedom-oriented people would really like my answers and might in some way find them as unpalatable as I myself do. Our entire show today actually expands on addressing those very questions and concerns from a number of perspectives. But if you want my quick response, here it is. Is there a country or leader not buying into this nonsense and not following the same regime? Well, there are several countries that aren't, just as there are several U.S. states that aren't. But they are in a political minority, which in the U.S. would not be the case had the election not been stolen. And of course, as I mentioned on last week's show, Donald Trump was the only world leader not buying into the Build Back Better propaganda campaign. Why are so many countries following it? Well, I don't think they are. They aren't. I mean, I think they're leading it. Remember, all the world's countries are predominantly socialist not capitalist, and they have a globalist agenda. They do not believe in the sovereignty of nations. So there's nothing they're following here except their own consciences, their own convictions, their own belief in this strange and bizarrely perverse ideal. Is there some kind of threat on them? By whom? Well, to answer that, I would say the real threat is against we the people, And it's by them, the leaders and politicians. But you know, that in turn has led to a potential threat on them by we the people in retaliation against all of these things they're doing to us. I think that at the root of these questions, there is some kind of call for a rational and simple explanation of what we're witnessing in the Western world. Many are finding it difficult and unacceptable to believe that their own elected representatives and institutions founded to prevent such dictatorial regimes are actually the ones promoting them. I'm reminded of a passage written by Ayn Rand that was recently brought to my attention. It's in the book I mentioned last week, The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, in an essay called The Inexplicable Personal Alchemy. And I quote, There is a fundamental conviction which some people never acquire, some hold only for their youth, 
and a few hold to the end of their days, the conviction that ideas matter. In one's youth, that conviction is experienced as a self-evident absolute, and one is unable to fully believe that there are people who do not share it. That ideas matter means that knowledge matters, that truth matters, that one's mind matters. And the radiance of that certainty in the process of growing up is the best aspect of youth. Its consequence is the inability to believe in the power or the triumph of evil. No matter what corruption one observes in one's immediate background, one is unable to accept it as normal, permanent, or metaphysically right. One feels this injustice, or terror, or falsehood, or frustration, or pain, or agony is the exception in life, not the rule. One feels certain that somewhere on earth, a proper human way of life is possible to human beings, and that justice matters. It takes years, if ever, to accept the notion that one lives among the not fully human, end quote. And of course, by not fully human, Rand was referring to those who refuse to think and those who deny reality and reject reason. That is how what we call evil takes root. But for those who accept reality and respect reason, it's very difficult to come to terms with the reality that others do not share these values or even understand why these values are necessary. Consequently, if you're not aware that these people are all around us, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to believe in the power or the triumph of evil, as Ayn Rand put it. Evil has consequences. As many are beginning to notice, we are entering a state of lawlessness, thus precluding any formal structure of law and justice essential to individual freedom. To understand what I mean, here's a rather disturbing analysis of the legal shortcomings surrounding the vaccine mandates in Canada and about the establishment of basic rights and freedoms. Adam Sosier here for Rebel News, and I am about to be joined by Derek Fromm. Derek is a lawyer who has been helping with our VaccineConsultation.com campaign. People afraid of losing their fundamental rights often don't have the means to speak with a lawyer. Through VaccineConsultations.com, people have had that chance and have been able to find some comfort in planning how they'll move forward. So no doubt a few of our people had a chance to speak with you, but for those who don't know you, if you could maybe introduce yourself and talk about your involvement with vaccineconsultations.com. So my name is Derek Fromm. I'm a lawyer. I practice near Calgary. I spent 10 years doing constitutional law at the Canadian Constitution Foundation in Calgary. And uh, since then, I've moved into private practice. And the vaccine consultations, it's been very interesting. I've had many people contact me and have been working through some of the problems with them. And it's very frustrating because there's no easy solutions. We've never been through anything like this before in our history. And all we have is the law as it's developed. Uh, For some people, the Constitution will protect them. For some people, it's labor law. And that's a black box to me. For other people, it's employment law. And basically what we can do is help them negotiate some sort of a reasonable stalemate or conclusion to their employment. It's extremely frustrating but preparing people for what's coming up has been very important because it seems to me that people have had a hard time getting lawyers that will even speak to them about these issues. And people are going off into the dark, not realizing what they're getting into. They have families to feed, mortgages to pay, and here they're about to lose their job. So it's very frustrating. 
uh, both for them and for myself, because I wish I could offer them better solutions, but all I can do is help guide them through the process. If you could maybe just talk a little bit about the legality, the constitutionality of these vaccine passports. So the vaccine passport is a very interesting issue. Of course, it is all kind of predicated on the idea that the government can somehow entice or force you to take a vaccine. And of course, until very recently, Canadian lawyers and constitutional experts would have said that's completely unconstitutional. And I mean, it's quite interesting when you look on the government's website, there's been some scrubbing of data, it almost looks like. Like there's uh, memos that have disappeared. There's a memo that's disappeared from the uh, Canadian Armed Forces website. And suddenly what was clearly unconstitutional now is, well, maybe a gray area, it could happen. It's uh, quite interesting to watch this all unfold. And then there is actually quite clear case law on informed consent mm -hmm. and also on uh, involuntary vaccination. Like both those things are very important uh, to the law in this conversation, vaccine passports. And, and when you're under duress and you take this to keep your job, is that really informed consent? Or, you know, in the worst case scenario, what happens when you're vaccinated against your will, mm -hmm. uh, as has happened before, uh, the courts have found that's battery in the past. Mm -hmm. So now that's kind of bookending some of this conversation. And with vaccine passports, I think it touches on a lot of issues. It should touch quite clearly on Section 7 of the Charter under both liberty and security of the person. But there's mobility rights that might be at stake. And uh, the, the Constitution guarantees that we can work in any province, we can move between provinces. And I would like to think a court might say that means you can leave your home for work as well. Um, it's not clear to me that that's the case, but I like to think it would be. Uh, and then, you know, there's also equality rights and uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of expression and uh, freedom of association. All these rights could be wound up with this vaccine passport. But also, I think what's very important is privacy rights. Uh, privacy rights, the, the privacy commissioners in Canada jointly issued a statement in the spring about whether or not governments and businesses could actually ask for your private health information. Mm -hmm. And it was quite clear what they said that uh, you know, without a clear legislative change of some sort, privacy legislation says no, they can't do that. And so when you're looking for whether or not a business can request this from you, uh, you're probably looking at the health orders. Yeah. And uh, I know here in Alberta, the most recent health order, I think it was number 43-2001, actually did discuss it and said that businesses could require it of patrons. But I haven't yet seen in this province a health order that says uh, that businesses can require it of their employees, which could be why I believe that employees are still kind of carved out from this. Yeah. But, you know, that's precarious too. All it takes is a health order. Mm -hmm. That's very easy to do. And on that note, speaking of these health orders, traditionally you talked about... Uh, for a change like this to occur, there'd need to be legislative change. And when those legislative changes take place, they're checked and balanced effectively yeah. against the constitution, against charter yeah. rights, those things. These health orders circumvent that whole thing. And yeah. what we're dealing with is, I mean, they can technically call them orders or laws, but there's a certain amount of lawlessness because yeah. this isn't legislated law. Absolutely, you know, that's a very, very important point. And so the constitution, which I referenced before with mobility rights, freedom of expression, association, all those rights that were discussed, what happens with the public health order, which is not done, passed through the legislature, not passed through a public body, it's effectively, it's an amendment of the Constitution in disguise. Mm -hmm. 
And so I am very convinced and very concerned that we are currently headed into a time of lawlessness. And right now, the lawless party is the state. Mm -hmm. The government is doing what it wants, and it deeply concerns me. Because as a lawyer, what I want is to be able to look at the past and take the past, assess the present, or assess the present, mm -hmm. and judge what will happen in the future. That's how you advise clients. Mm -hmm. But right now, I can't rely on the past. Yeah. Because we're in this state of upheaval. So when a client comes in and says, this is what's happening to me, I say things like, well, if it were 2018, I think the law would be very clearly in your favor. Mm -hmm. But we're not in 2018. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the future is. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very unstable time and it's very concerning to me because as a lawyer, again, I like the rule of law. I like the predictability and knowing that there's rules there that we all play by, but I'm growing increasingly concerned we're entering a time of lawlessness. Finally, uh, any words to people out there who maybe haven't had a vaccine consultation, haven't spoken to lawyers, people who are maybe afraid, unsure, their employers aren't willing to help them, uh, a word of maybe a minor vaccine consultation to people generally as to what they should do to ensure that their rights aren't infringed. Well, the first thing is if you're unionized, you go right to your union rep and you force them or grab them by the ears and say, I need representation. Don't take no for an answer. Uh, from what I've seen, uh, union reps aren't all that excited about doing anything about this. I mean, like every other sort of quasi-political body, they're interested in upward mobility. So you have to be the most vocal advocate for what you want. That's the first thing. So if you're unionized, go through that. You have to exhaust that process. Now, if you, if you happen to have an employer that's governed by the charter, and that's, that's maybe universities, maybe, uh, AHS maybe, uh, teachers maybe. I say maybe because there is some ambiguity in the law here and we would have to do some research on particularly uh, the, the situation these people are facing. Yeah. But if you work directly for the government, like a municipal government or something like that, then perhaps the charter will apply and that will, will help you. Now, the other side of it is if you have a private employer and they're demanding that you uh, get vaccinated, the sad news is in this country, you can be fired at any time for any reason. None of us has a right to a particular job. And your employer, it's just a matter of, are they firing you with cause or without cause? And I like to think that uh, no one's employment contract would say that you have to take a COVID-19 vaccine. Mm -hmm. And hopefully all these dismissals that are coming, because there's gonna be a wave of dismissals in the coming weeks, uh, I'd like to think that it's all without cause and that people are entitled to severance. So then at, at that point, the problem is that us lawyers, basically what we can do to help is we can help you get a fair severance package. And maybe, maybe in some circumstances, uh, look at getting a damage award for the dismissal as well. But that, you know, honestly, the situation is grim. The law has never really developed to deal with circumstances like this. I have never heard of 30% of the workforce being fired in some industries because they won't take a vaccine. It's surprising to me since twice before nurses in Ontario have won arbitration panels where they have withheld 
and been successful in, in not taking a mandatory flu vaccine and not being forced to mask, mask on the job. I mean, that's happened twice, but so it's surprising to me that we're ending up this way, that you could have, for instance, a 17 year employee from WestJet who's worked from home for 17 years and she's gonna lose her job out the door and they had the guts to say no severance. It's unbelievable. Well, it's certainly a grim picture for now. Fortunately, we aren't backing down from this fight. Uh, vaccine consultations was the very start of it. But now we're moving forward with fightvaccinepassports.com. We plan to challenge the legality of these unconstitutional restrictions and vaccine passports in court. And we hope to set that valuable precedent that will hopefully liberate the country from these unjust measures. Looks like Rebel News may have a tough legal battle ahead of them on that front or at least have more fronts on which to fight that battle. As witness, this September 23rd London Free Press front page headline, Vax Passports OK, writes Watchdog. Ontario proof of Vax plan acceptable amid pandemic commission rules. Written by Antonella Artuzo of the Canadian Press. And I quote, Requiring vaccine passports in higher-risk settings is acceptable amid the COVID-19 pandemic, the Ontario Human Rights Commission has ruled. While receiving a COVID-19 vaccine remains voluntary, requiring proof of a vaccination to protect people at work or when receiving services is generally permissible, officials said in a statement Wednesday. As long as protections are put in place to make sure people who are unable to be vaccinated for code-related reasons, are reasonably accommodated. This applies to all organizations. People with a medical exemption must obtain proof in writing from a physician, registered nurse, or nurse practitioner. Ontario Premier Doug Ford said the system requiring proof of full vaccination against COVID-19 will be temporary, but he would not divulge his criteria for ending it, except that it will be based on advice from Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health and other public health experts. I know that many people are concerned about the certificate and what it means for your civil liberties, Ford said. Our government understands your concerns, and it's no secret that I was reluctant to use this tool. But our highest concern, what keeps me up at night, is ensuring we never lose our hard-fought progress, end quote. I can't possibly imagine to what possible progress Ford is referring everything's worse than it was a year or two ago. They're worse than ever, especially following all the government's irrational edicts and prohibitions. The lockdowns haven't worked, the vaccines don't work, nothing they've done works. Masking doesn't work, the numbers keep going up by their own admission. They're making this all up as they go along. Doug Ford's the same guy who said the two-week lockdown to flatten the curve would be temporary. Like, you know, two weeks? <laughs> two weeks in theory? And he also said at the time, and ever since, that his decision will be based on advice from Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health and other public health experts, meaning that Ford has effectively abandoned his post as Ontario Premier. When the Ontario Human Rights Commission says that vaccine passport requirements are acceptable as a means to protect people, it is already admitted to its own irrationality and futility. The facts and realities of both viruses and vaccines are utterly being ignored 
for some kind of fantasy that a passport can in any way affect the spread of a virus. To call this insane is to admit that this insanity is not self-evident. I shouldn't even have to say that it's insane. People who are vaccinated against something are by definition protected against whatever that something is. And the asymptomatic and the unvaccinated are no threat. Especially, in theory, to the vaccinated. But what a different story we're getting with respect to this nonsensical vaccine. And for Ford to announce that his government understands, quote-unquote, the public's concern about civil liberties is a glaring admission that his government, in admitting such understanding, also doesn't give a damn about our civil liberties. And you know, I've been thinking about it. When a government grants to a business the right, or maybe you could call it the obligation, to ask their employees and customers to reveal their private health status, they are in fact making that business and that business owner an agent of the state. The arm of fascism has always been within corporate and business interests. The so-called public-private partnerships they talk about, which are not partnerships, but political aberrations, unacceptable in a free society. The ultimate insult added to the injuries of the lockdowns and mandated vaccines is that the measures themselves are completely unrelated to any health concerns and are completely, completely political in nature, thus invalidating any emergency justifications for the controls. All this is consistent with the long-announced and publicized plans behind the fascist Agenda 21 and the Great Reset, names invented to describe the global effort to destroy freedom, capitalism, and humanity itself, which is what we talked about last week. What are being called vaccine passports are no such thing. They are a weapon of the broader globalist agenda against individual personal freedom. The great continuing danger is that too many people still cannot see the forest for the trees. Many literally, literally believe that there is a viral pandemic, there isn't, that the vaccines work, they don't, and that the politics is incidental. It is not. It's the other way around, and that's basically what we're going to be focusing on for the rest of the show. And one person who understands this is Ontario lawyer Bruce Party who has appeared on Just Right in the past. As if to echo or expand on reasons behind the coming era of lawlessness, here's his very sobering and grounded perspective on the law, on politics, and culture. Lawyer Bruce Party spoke with Kate Wand on her September 19th show, and their discussion, entitled What Good is the Law?, took the discussion about what may be perceived as lawlessness to a discussion of the limits of law itself. As you know, I'm, I, I think mask mandates are ridiculous, given the data, given the, given the research, given what it says, yeah. and it's an imposition of people's ability to choose from themselves what they want to do. Legally though, again, it's a, it's a bit problematic if you compare it to other things. And again, I'm not saying that the same thing at all, but they are abstractly similar, which is how we do legal reasoning. You take one situation that's got abstract similarities to the next one and you say, all right, well, what is what is a requirement to wear a mask? It's a it's a requirement to wear something on your body Mm -hmm. justified on the grounds of health and safety. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, that's wrong. Okay, I would tend to agree with that, except that we have other things as well. We have bicycle helmets. We have seatbelts. We have 
other things that the governments make you do that you might not want to do mm -hmm. in the name of health and safety, which so far themselves have not been declared charter violations. So unless you can show that a rule requiring you to wear a helmet when you're on your bicycle yeah. is a charter violation, then you're going to have a similar difficulty with a mask mandate. And there's, you, have to, you have to look for something in the charter that's actually been violated. And that's not such an easy thing to do. It's hard to pinpoint yeah. and... There's an old classic comedy film from Australia called The Castle. Have you seen The Castle? No. The Castle is a great, great film. Very funny. It's about this guy who's trying to save his house from expropriation for the expansion of the airport that's basically next door. And uh, he doesn't know, doesn't, doesn't know what to do, doesn't know how to do it. And he gets this sort of hapless lawyer who doesn't know what he's doing either. And the hapless lawyer goes into court and, and says, you know, this is a violation of the Constitution. And, and the court says, okay, what section of the Constitution has been violated? Hmm. And this hapless lawyer has nothing. Like, he doesn't know what section. So he says, well, there's no one particular section. It's just the vibe of the thing. <laughs> right? and, and, and that is sort of, uh, in part, what's happening now. We have a charter of rights. And people perceive rightly that they are being imposed upon, that the mm -hmm. state is telling them what to do, and it is. Yes. And it seems wrong, and I agree with them. Yes. But we have this charter, and so surely the charter should respond to this. And the question is, what section of the charter are we talking about? Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to identify one that actually responds to this situation. Okay, so can you tell us what you think the difference between rights and privileges are? Yes, well, I try. <laughs> right. A privilege is something you're not entitled to, but a privilege is something you're not entitled to as a matter of right. So there's a saying that goes, there's no right without a remedy. Meaning, if you can't go to a, an adjudicator of some kind and have them acknowledge that a wrong has been done to you and here's the solution, yeah. well then, in fact, you do not have a right. Because the test of the right is whether or not you can get a remedy. It's a bit like the, oh. the proof of the, of, the, of the pudding is in the eating. Yeah. A privilege is a... Is a, is a nothing, and a right is a serious thing. And do you think that rights are granted by the law, by the government, by rule of law, or do you think that there are certain inalienable rights? This is a, a, a great philosophical uh, debate, right, about where rights come from. And people make the case that there are some inherent rights that, that you may lay claim to regardless of the state of the, of the law or the government or, and, and such. But that's not really what we're talking about. So in other words, the best way around that problem is to say, that's a legitimate debate to have. But those are two different things. The inherent rights may be, but the legal rights that you have today are the ones you can go to a court and have recognized and remedied. So if you think that you should that you have an inherent moral right yeah. by virtue of being human and alive. Yeah. Okay. And your philosophical beliefs. And your philosophical beliefs. Right. I mean those are totally legitimate. Yeah. But it's not the same thing as saying, I actually have an actual legal right, I can go to court tomorrow and I can get them to recognize it. Yes. It's really it's not a it's not an actual debate that way. One one's a debate about should mm -hmm. and the other one's a debate about is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if you keep those things straight, then, then we can have that debate about what should be, and so much the better, because we need to have those debates. Yeah. But the proof of the pudding, as I said, right now is, can you go to a court 
and, and make a claim and the court says yeah well it's interesting because you know with this degradation of our rights yes. whether they are the ones that we think we should have or not right <laughs> we've seen that there's this kind of um movement that has happened where people are trying to incite like very old law like the magna carta right people are trying i think they're searching yes for a solution right to the right uh, authoritarianism yes that, is, that has taken over yeah and that's both good and bad it's good because of course the law is very important it's supposed to be a backstop when things go wrong we're supposed to be a society based upon the rule of law and so for all those reasons, it's, it's good that people want to look to the law. The, the unfortunate aspect is that they're giving the law more credit than it deserves. In many of these situations, the law is not going to help right now. There's a, a, a saying I keep, I keep referring to that law is downstream from politics and politics is downstream from culture. People like to think of the law as, as fundamental, as established, rock solid, it's the thing that never moves. It's written down in black and white. So whatever happens over here in politics and whatever happens here over in the big culture, if the culture goes nuts, well, it's not good, but in the end, it'll be okay because we have the law. Mm. And, you know, that's not really the way it works because the law is a product of politics and politics comes from the culture. And so if you lose the culture, then the law is not going to be there. And this is what's happening. We are losing the culture. The culture is turning. And people think, well, you know, charter rights, we have charter rights are written down. Don't worry about it. Well, worry about it because that's not, that's not necessarily a safe haven for all the things that are happening right now in the name of COVID and, yeah. and so on. It's just, it's just not so. Now, I listened to something so interesting the other day, which was um, the difference between a totalitarian state and a dictatorial state <laughs> was that uh, classical dictatorship is based on the premise that there are many who are afraid of the few elite. And so they live under that kind of control, but that a totalitarian control is based upon a mass delusion. <laughs> And I, I find that very interesting, um, interesting. and relevant mm. Mm. where we are, because there is something very delusional about this whole situation. This goes back to where we started with rights, right? Because the idea of rights is, is supposed to protect the individual from the group. Yeah. And in a totalitarian kind of situation, you're, like you're describing, where where there is a prevailing view about what's right. And that view is taken to be justification for imposing upon those people who do not agree. Yeah. Rights are supposed to be there in order to protect you from being coerced in that way. And yet it's working in almost the opposite way. Now, the prevailing view is being used as a justification for putting aside the rights or finding that there are no rights to start with or allowing the reasonable limits as provided for in section one. And so it, it kind of puts the whole thing in question. Like, well, why, why, why are we pretending to have rights if in a situation like this, which is exactly when you need the rights, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if they don't apply, 
well, then the whole project is sort of, well, 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 well yeah. let's stop pretending. Yeah. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. That last argument made by Bruce Party, you know, where in a situation like this, when you need the rights, speaks to the very purpose of ensuring that we protect these rights in law and remedy any situation where those rights have been demonstrably violated. It's the same justification for freedom of speech that we hear so much about, isn't it? The test of whether you have a right to freedom of speech occurs when a very, say, distasteful or offensive expression of something that is otherwise consensual is protected under law, or when an opinion, political or otherwise, that is counter to the official or state narrative is also protected by law, etc. Here again, these are the instances where you actually need freedom of speech, and if that freedom of speech doesn't apply to those circumstances, well, then you can't say you have the right to freedom of speech. Let's stop pretending, right? <laughs> and never forget, freedom of speech is a two-way street. Not only do we have the right to speak, but we also have the right to hear and be heard by those who wish to do so. Now, so far, we've been talking mostly about laws and rights and freedom issues in principle and in the abstract. But let's not forget about the evidence, the facts, and why this discussion is even necessary in the first place. Here's Mark Paralavos to review some of that evidence relating to the consequences of vaccinations. This is a thread of VAERS. Now, there's been VAERS is the CDC um, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, okay? And anybody can report to this, but I, th I think that it's done by, I think that the reporting is done by doctors and it's overseen by the CB CDC. CDC is the Center for Disease Control in the US. As far as I understand it, these are legitimate numbers and these reports are legitimate and they're just heartbreaking. So I, I don't know how many of these I can get through, but we'll, we'll do, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, the first one is just, just a mess, it's terrible. But anyway, uh, the following thread details children under 17 in the USA that have died after taking the COVID injection. Healthy kids should not be injected with a serum that provides them no benefit, has no long-term safety data, and is still in the trial phase. Children are not human shields. Here's the link to the, to the VAERS report, okay? Age 16, male, injected on April, 4, April 3rd, 2021, died on April 30th, 2021. His parents wrote, my son died while taking his math class on Zoom. He was a healthy boy. He had a good academic index. He wanted to be a civil engineer. He was the best thing in my life. How do you do that? How do you do that to a, a population, right? Age one, male, injected on the 4th of April, died on the 10th of April. Age 11, too young, injected um, on September 14th, died, but no date was given. Um, Male, 13, injected on June 13th, died on June 15th. The boy was injected on June 13th. He suffered a flu-like symptoms for two days and was found dead. Um, so will people tolerate this? Is this, is, this a tolerable, is, is this a tolerable group of people to be dying? Here's, here's a, I'm gonna play this as long as it makes sense. I'll play like a minute. Uh, I probably won't play all of it, but these are, these are deaths as reported in the news. His story is different than nearly every other one we've heard because he died 
even though he was vaccinated. Now confirmed, a vaccinated patient has died from COVID complications at Thomas Hospital. Patricio Elizondo died after succumbing to lung complications from COVID-19. Elizondo's diagnosis after a chest x-ray was unexpected. He was fully vaccinated. He's mourning the loss of his wife after she died from COVID-19. He says the Henry County teacher was fully vaccinated. Just devastated after their loved one lost her battle with COVID, even though she was fully vaccinated. A county resident has died from the virus in spite of having gotten the shot. And 27 fully vaccinated people have also died from COVID-19, this despite getting their shots. In the North Bay, who was fully vaccinated, got COVID, and then died. Her friends say she was a talented painter, singer, and businesswoman. Lost her own father, even though he was fully vaccinated. It's so sad. Napa County Public Health Officer Dr. Karen Relucio says the COVID-19 victim was fully vaccinated. On the case of a man who died after getting vaccinated. EMS dispatch records say a 68-year-old woman had an allergic reaction at a public health vaccination hosted at the Keystone School in Ozaki. Evans' obituary says she died Wednesday from a reaction to the COVID vaccine. Dallas County official. And so, you know, just trust the experts, right? Right? Seems, seems to be a little suspect. One third are unvaccinated, says BBC UK. A third of positive COVID cases in Wales are unvaccinated. What about the other two thirds? Are the two thirds vaccinated? One third is less than two thirds. Just to make sure you're on, on board with that math. And never forget, they are now considering people who've had an injection to not be quote-unquote vaccinated until two weeks after their shot. So even though they get a shot, if they get sick or die within the first two weeks, they are listed as an unvaccinated injury or death. How about that, right? Does any of this make sense to anybody? Now, in the first quarter of today's show, the issue of placebos was raised, and I mentioned a fellow by the name of John O'Looney who has been making waves, not just about that topic, but about his own first-hand observations as a UK undertaker in the midst of what's supposed to be a pandemic. There are a number of sources I could have chosen from which to feature our upcoming audio bite on this side of the bumper, but I chose a clip from the September 23rd Stu Peters show, thanks mainly to his own excellent introductory summary of why his guest has suddenly raised to fame. Bear in mind that they talked about a lot more than what we'll be featuring today because our selection of their conversation is specifically edited to the discussion about placebos. Now, I presented my own theory about the purpose of the placebos last week, and John O'Looney, whose ideas about this were unknown to me at that time, surprisingly echoed my own. He refers to the placebo strategy as the advocate method of vaccination, and you'll understand why after you hear him describe it himself. And on the return side of our bumper, more from Bruce Party. You might remember a viral video posted recently. It featured an interview with John O'Looney, a funeral director, from the UK. During that interview, he made a number of very remarkable assertions. He says that while retrieving a body in November of 2019, he found a hospital with a pop-up morgue, anticipating a massive wave of deaths. That was two months before anybody had heard of COVID-19. He says that he repeatedly saw people labeled as COVID deaths, even if they died of natural causes, of terminal cancer, even being hit by a car all COVID deaths. He says that it's his belief that thousands of elderly people in the UK were euthanized with a sedative and then labeled as coronavirus deaths 
But he also says that overall in 2020, the death rate compared to past years was about the same or even down. Now, he did see a huge explosion in deaths, but it wasn't in 2020. It was early this year in 21, and it happened almost the moment mass vaccination began. Then from April through the summer, he says it was one of the quietest periods he had ever seen. There weren't enough deaths for him to keep the lights on. And now he says the death rate is rising again. And the people coming in, he says, are from all age ranges. And they aren't just old people. The causes of death, he says, are heart attacks, blood clots, strokes, multiple organ failure. Sound familiar? Almost all of these people, he says, are vaccinated. He saw a man, a barber, who died at age 23 just after getting the second shot. And now he's terrified of what's happening next because the vaccine is now being administered to young children. And if they start to die, he predicts the deaths will just be blamed on a new variant of coronavirus. In short, he says there is no COVID pandemic. He believes the whole thing is a sham. The elderly last spring were put down with sedatives. The dead from the past year were killed by vaccines. And he believes this is a centrally organized depopulation agenda to kill the old and call or sterilize the young. And he says that what's coming next is massive prison camps, which he says will be dubbed COVID quarantine camps, where he says vaccine resistors will eventually be rounded up and murdered. With the new deaths, of course, being blamed on COVID. In short, everyone that you know and love will die in the years to come, either from the vaccine or from murder at the hands of the government. That's a very remarkable set of claims, but John O'Looney says that he's utterly convinced he's right, and other funeral directors and doctors agree with him. Well, after all that, I knew I absolutely had to speak with John O'Looney, and he joins us now. John, thank you so much for being here. Does all that pretty much line up with... Take us through yeah, this. Take us to, through to this. To be honest with you, I like the fact that you've done your homework and you've listened to that interview because that's exactly what I feel will happen. Now, the um, the method used with the vaccine has been very, very careful, and it's called the advocate method. So let me explain. Um, if you had 100 vaccines in a tray, and let's say, uh, uh, hypothetically speaking, 85 of those were placebo, and they did no damage at all, um, and 15 of those were designed to maim and kill. So you have 100 recipients come up and they take those vaccines. The vast majority, the 85, will suffer no effects. And they are then your advocates for the vaccine. The 15 that become sick and ill are your COVID patients and your COVID deaths. And they were very, very clear about warning us these vaccines wouldn't be 100% effective, weren't they? And that would correspond with what I've just said. Now, I did wonder... How are they going to nail people who have had a vaccine, but they've had a placebo? How is that going to happen? And then they recently announced regular boosters for the next three to five years. So basically, when you go up for a vaccine, it's a lottery. You're either lucky or you're not. Do you think you'll be lucky for the next three or five years? Do you believe that all of the shots that are not placebo are essentially kill shots? I think there's a range in there because you, I've seen so many, I've had people come to me, um, one guy, his mum went blind, another guy was paralysed from the waist down almost instantly and was then given the second shot and found passed away at home the second day. Um, another guy um, died on the way home in the car from the clinic. Um, uh, uh, the hairdresser, as you've heard, 
um, in the Goodfellows Barbers. He was found to have had a, an undiscovered heart condition at 23. Do you know, these are these are um, more and more common deaths that I'm seeing coming through. And I make a point of asking the families, you know, was mum or dad um, uh, jabbed? And they, they there's a mixture. I, some people um, see it and they're very angry and they're dropped like a stick. You know, nobody will listen to them. And the others are totally oblivious. They'll say, yeah, mum was jabbed, but it can't have been that. It was eight weeks ago. They just don't see the connection. You know, because there's been a really intense... It's a really... Uh, I mean, I have to applaud the level of genius behind it because it's actually insanity because they've actually got pe people advocating killing their own people without realizing you ask any politician who's got an 85 percent uh, advocate base 85 percent majority there's no way on earth that can ever be overcome Have you also seen like, you know, the, the trolley question? Yes, right? yes. The trolley problem essentially says you're, you're the driver of a trolley and you're going down the track and there are five people in front of you you're gonna run over and they can't get off in time. And there's one person on the other track that you can, you can switch the, the, the train and you go off on the other track and kill the one person instead of the five. Do you make the switch? And it's a, it's a moral problem. Um, but the utilitarian response basically is, well, of course, you kill the one instead of the five. But then you can morph the problem, right? You say, well, if it's okay to change tracks and kill the one to save the five, well, can we apply that principle to other things? Exactly. So if you have five neighbors who need organ transplants and you're a healthy person right. and you will save their five lives, is it okay for the state to come along and say, well, we're applying the utilitarian answer. so?" Come over here and we're going to put you under and take out your organs. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that would be, well, of course not. But the real question is, well, why? Why is that not okay? And the other one, well, maybe it's okay. It's the same problem in the abstract. But it's interesting because the same kind of utilitarian thinking is being applied now. Yes. Um, for should unvaccinated individuals... Yes. Uh, be lost in line for healthcare, right? Or should they even not be treated if they get COVID? A lot of people have been talking about this. Like, right? Um, it was a who was it on a late night show recently had said basically like it's a very easy answer. Man comes with a heart attack who's fully vaccinated, right. come right in, sir. Uh, and then of course they made it sound like crazy donkey conspiracy theorist. Right. Unvaccinated comes in, right? Nope. We don't have room for you. We only have one bed. It's going to go to this person. Right. So that's kind of, so it's interesting because it's not only utilitarian because there's two people. Mm -hmm. So now also it's, it's, there's it's, one and one, but it's who is the better. It's morally community. judgmental. Right. Correct. Yes. Right. Right. The, the, the ideology we are suffering from now, one of the things it's wanted to toss out is consistency. That means you should also apply the same rule to everything else, mm -hmm. all other kinds of medical afflictions and all other people. Mm -hmm. So that means you're going to have to suddenly deny people care if they smoke mm -hmm. or if they don't eat well mm -hmm. and developed you know, a condition for that reason, yeah. or if they ride a motorcycle instead of a car. Yeah. Okay. Suddenly we're now in the realm of deciding whether or not people's decisions entitle them to healthcare. 
And the irony here is if you start going down that road, which I'm not entirely opposed to if you really went down it, because where you're starting to go there is now you are requiring people to take responsibility for their own decisions. And you're going to go finally, if you take it all the way to a place where you say, well, we can't have a public healthcare system anymore. Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) But the irony is they're heading towards private healthcare. Look, if you want to take those risks, then you pay for them. Okay. I I mean, sure. That's what what we've always said. People should be paying for their own healthcare because their own risks are based upon their own behaviors, at least in part. If you want to drive a motorcycle and take the risk, okay. But if you get into an accident, well, then you, you pay for the care. Private healthcare. The only kind that can properly be called healthcare is the ultimate nemesis of all public healthcare systems. From day one, socialized healthcare in Ontario began a system of rationing. So what we're seeing today is only more severe in degree, not in kind. Doctors warn of system collapse, reads the headline in the London Free Press National Post of September 10th. Seek stricter measures as ICU beds running out, written by Alana Smith, and I quote, Alberta's healthcare system is on the verge of collapse, warns a group of physicians who are pleading with the government to strengthen public health measures to fend off a relentless fourth wave of COVID-19. Dr. Shazma Matani, an emergency room physician in Edmonton, said a staffing crisis, overwhelmed intensive care units, and mixed messaging from the province has created a dire situation. Her biggest fear, she said, is that doctors will need to triage patients should hospitalizations continue to mount. We don't want to have to make these decisions where we're choosing who gets to have intensive care or not. And we're getting closer and closer to that every day, Matani said in an interview. Matani said the government needs to listen to frontline health care workers and implement strong public health restrictions to prevent the health system from crumbling, end quote. Now, of course, the COVID part of this narrative is all BS, but the system collapse, that narrative has been ongoing long before any pandemic crisis. But notice how they never learn from their mistakes and disasters. They want to implement strong public health restrictions to prevent the health system from crumbling. Well, that's a non sequitur. Who cares about a dysfunctional, inoperative system? It's the patients and those in need of health care that we should be caring about. And this government and our officials in health care have been denying all sorts of essential basic Healthcare to Canadians. It has been deplorable. Single payer, centralized, and bureaucratic public health care monopolies are doomed to extinction from the minute they are adopted. The only variable is the amount of time it takes. And this brings us to the tiny little inconvenience of a Category 55 emergency doomsday crisis <laughs> that kicked off our show today. And that is the topic of emergency ethics. The trolley problem was an example of the ethics of emergencies. And the utilitarian principle of, I guess, the greatest good for the greatest number is not an ethical standard. But what it is, is the standard applied whenever there are emergencies, quote-unquote, and that's why states of emergency are so critical to statists. Everything has to be an emergency, from climate change to COVID-19, because That's the only ethical grounds on which collectivists can justify their never-relenting restrictions on individual freedom. 
Even criminals, you know, require some kind of moral ground on which to base their activities. And it's not because they're being ethical. They know that the public is generally compliant under this false ethical code, which allows them to get away with violating their rights, the very ethical code that should be protected. Now, as we wrap up, earlier in the show, you'll recall that the difference between a dictatorship and a totalitarian regime related to a difference between fear and delusion. And wouldn't you know it, Ayn Rand had something very significant to say about this. Again, only a few paragraphs after the paragraph I shared earlier in the show from her book, The New Left, and her essay, The Inexplicable Personal Alchemy, and I quote, This is the ultimate penalty of all dictators and all liars. Their nemesis is those who believe them. A dictatorship has to promulgate some sort of distant goals and moral ideals in order to justify its rule and the people's immolation. The extent to which it succeeds in convincing its victims is the extent of its own danger. Sooner or later, its contradictions are thrown in its face by the best of its subjects, the ablest, the most intelligent, the most honest. Thus, a dictatorship is forced to destroy and to keep on destroying the best of its human resources. And be it 50 years or five centuries later, ambitious thugs and lethargic drones are all a dictatorship will have left to exploit and rule. The rest will die young, physically or spiritually. The dedication to ideas leads, in practice, to an almost involuntary goodwill towards men, or rather to something deeper and more important, which is the root of goodwill. Respect. End quote. And how interesting that one of the four pillars of the PPC, the People's Party of Canada, is respect. Nice pick there, Maxime. <laughs> and no wonder the left hates the PPC. But you know, Rand's words are not particularly reassuring when she says, be it 50 years or five centuries later, like, I doubt if any of us are going to be around in 500 years, and so in this context, it's clear that we're talking about a world that we'll be leaving behind for our children and their descendants. Will they still be saying, you know, people never learn from history, and that history repeats itself? Or will they even be able to express such things under a dictatorship. Those are just a few of the crises that we'll want to prevent by continuing to provide intellectual and moral ammunition. That's right, ideas. Ideas against the collectivist ideas of dictators and tyrants everywhere and throughout history. And towards that end, an objective, you are cordially invited to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I had the one moment while I was traveling on this last flight, you can tell people were like stressed out in the airport. And I, I took a big drink of water, and then I had that thing. You know when your body just forgets how to do something? You know what I mean? Like, you know when you, like, you poke yourself in the eye with a straw? Even though you've used a straw a million times, like, anyway, it's gonna have a drink now. Ah! Like... Or a big one is sometimes your body just forgets how to swallow. 
It's like you get stuff in your mouth and your body's like, wait a second, I know I've done this a million times. Do I send it to the belly or the lungs? And I had that, I took a drink and just went in my lungs and then now I'm like, you can't cough in an airport right now. People will murder you. <laughs>